Explode your to-be-read pile with The New Release Index, your new best friend for finding the best new books. Curated by the book nerds here at Book Riot, it will help you keep track of the upcoming books we think should be on your radar. You can filter by genre, what's trending among other subscribers, and save books to your own watch list. And you can check out the demo at bookriot.com slash new releases. That's bookriot.com slash new releases. Happy browsing! Fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. Doesn't sound too bad. What can you say? We're going to try to say things. I had the hardest time coming up with stuff to say because I think more than any other movie we've done, and unless we ever do Star Wars, which we won't because it's not based on a book, this is integrated into my cultural DNA. Mm-hmm. It's weirdly integrated into my personality. It's integrated <laughs> into my my verbiage. Like so many of these quotes ha- are like uh-huh. Homeric epithets that Michelle and I use back and forth. Yeah, uh, People of my generation, um, I won't throw you into my elderly lot at this point. <laughs> It, it it is a it is a lingua franca. It is um, to be able to quote, especially the top level lines, but even the second and third. That you know, when, where we get to best quotes, and we could just put the screenplay there. <laughs> but really, it's the second tier quotes I think that make this movie the movie and distinguish it. You know, a fan of the movie from someone who's seen this movie, like inconceivable as a pop culture thing. Really, I mean, I'm sure there are people yeah. that hear this, maybe even use it. I don't know where it comes from. Um, going forward. So I have very, I found very, very hard to look at it with anything like fresh eyes um, at this point. So anyway, th- that's my take. How about you, Rebecca, to revisit again? What was your I experience was of looking thinking, at it? Yeah, I was thinking the same thing, that it's always interesting when we do this for a movie that I've seen a billion times and I'm putting on a new pair of glasses to watch it but Mm. Princess Bride more than any of the ones we've done so far as you were saying like is baked into like my lexicon my DNA like I the first item on our usual book nerd movie hour uh, agenda is how like when did you first encounter this piece of media and I have no idea like I couldn't tell you the first time I saw the Princess Bride I've I've been able to quote it for as long as I can remember. I have no idea what my first exposure to it was. So it was interesting reading the book first, which I did read the book, but it was like in college 20 years Mm -hmm. ago um, and for fun, not for study. Um, And so I did like the book felt fresh. The the experience of the book felt fresh and picking up on a lot of the satire felt fresh. And then watching the movie in contrast to the book was an interesting exercise, but just the movie itself, like it it is hard to like find much (laughs) To, I have like zero nits to pick. Like it's pretty perfect. <laughs> Even its imperfections are perfect. I would say in a lot of yeah. ways. We can get to that in a minute as well. Like like you, I was. How did you first encounter this movie? I have no idea. You and I are of the similar. We are of the VHS generation. Even if we're not of the mm-hmm. necessarily the same year generation. And this was. You know, I didn't do a lot of homework on this because I've done a lot of homework before on The Princess Bride. Yeah. I've read the Carrie Elway's book, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. I highly it recommend is. it, it's especially great. on audio. You're going to get all the nuggets you could ever want there. But I think in terms of the the biography of the movie, especially, it's a VHS story. You know, it didn't do very well at the box office. It is eminently rewatchable. So it lended itself to that first generation of people having a copy 
of a movie at home or going to get it on Tuesday night for 99 cents at the grocery store like we used to do. Right. And you would watch it over and over and over again. And you'd watch different pieces of it. Like one interesting about the the movies that you tend to rewatch, at least I think most of us work this way, you don't tend to sit down press play, watch it credits to credits. You watch the middle, you catch it on cable. Mm -hmm. So like, it's been a while since I'd seen the opening and beginning, like the cold open. I'd I'd remember as soon as it started happening, but the last shot of the movie is very weird. How the movie ends with the credits is very odd. Hadn't seen that in a while. Um, But like a lot of movies of these, you know, late 80s into, really into the 90s, there were so many that could become VHS stars. Uh, One of my other favorite movies that's a little bit later that I know um, Buena Vista, which I think distributed Princess Bride as well, really invested in, uh, for the for swingers, invested in mm. these big cardboard cutouts of, of uh, Trent <laughs> with a martini glass. You probably remember that one, right? I do, yeah. And there were similar things done for the Princess Bride in um, video stores around the country. And I think probably most people didn't see it in the movie theater because no one ever did, but caught it on video somehow. And it became, you know, it's a... It's between a commercial pop culture phenomenon and a cult classic. It falls in a weird and kind of valley, I think, where it's both. It's both a cult classic mm-hmm. and something everybody knows at, at some point. Yeah, and it's like in my memory, it's the thing we watched every time kids from my church youth group yeah. got together. Super because... safe. Great point. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's super safe. Like it's fun. It doesn't feel like you're watching a kid's movie, but mm-hmm. also you can show it to kids because it's clearly like not real enough to be I, I don't think super scary for kids, but I know you watched it with your kids, so yeah. we'll get into that later. But it was yeah, like it was safe for teenagers to watch that were, you know, together for a church situation. But it has romance and it's ridiculous and eminently quotable. Mm-hmm. And just like that's one of those things, especially in the teenage years that like you develop those shared languages with the people that you're spending a lot of time with. And like, I didn't realize until I was older that like everybody is quoting the princess bride with their group of friends. I'd felt very special. That's a great point too. Like this was the language that I had with my people was Mm -hmm. that we quoted the princess bride. (laughs) That was part of it. It's a really good point. Who are you? No one of consequence. I must get used to disappointment. Um. Explode your to-be-read pile with The New Release Index, your new best friend for finding the best new books. Curated by the book nerds here at Book Riot, it will help you keep track of the upcoming books we think should be on your radar. You can filter by genre, what's trending among other subscribers, and save books to your own watch list. And you can check out the demo at bookriot.com slash new releases. That's bookriot.com slash new releases. Happy browsing. Um, as you can tell already, this is going to be, I mean, this is book, clerk, book nerd movie club. So the movie is really the, the, the entree here. And I think more than most, we're going to be talking a lot more about the movie and we use the book kind of a seasoning or different perspective. Goldman, uh, William Goldman, who wrote the book, um, you know, one of the great 20th century, well, only screenwriters in the 20th Well, no, we're in the 21st century. We've got great 21st century screenwriters now. Um, but one of the one of the titans of screenwriting was also a novelist. This book was a novel at first. Some of the weird metatextual stuff um, that's in the movie is deployed even more forcefully, and I think less winningly, especially as the book <laughs> goes on. Um, but he loved 
this book, and a lot of people really liked it. And, you know, you can Google oral histories. I don't think we need to rehash it here, Rebecca, unless there's anything yeah. you want to do about how it took a long time to get made. Rob Reiner picked it up. It is part of what made Rob Reiner's career. I think there's some other interesting things to note about this particular moment in time and genres. And, you know, 1987 is a formative year in a lot of different kinds of movies. But if you go, you know, I think we should talk about what genre, but Goldman liked to do, he blended genres like Butch Cassidy and the Sun Gets Kid probably. He thought it would be his most famous movie, but I think it's A Princess Bride now at this point. I don't think there's any question about that. But dialogue, bringing um, sparkling dialogue to genre was a William Goldman hack. Like that's something he sort of figured out. I can make a Western that's funny and sharp without being without making it Blazing Saddles, right? It doesn't have to be the good, the bad, and the ugly, and it doesn't have to be Blazing Saddles. It can be this middle thing which respects the genre, loves the genre, but then also kind of tap dances on top of it a little bit too. And I think The Princess Bride takes that to you know, a level that rises to just below satire. I'm going to get into a little bit. I'm saving it for the show. We have previewed it before. Um, but I, I think where it exists as a genre is super interesting to think about as well. And I think for us, we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, Let's it, as a way of transitioning to talking about the book, I think some of the thing, some of the hints you get in the movie about the, the, the property's attitude toward genre and form are brought into greater relief in the book. Is that fair? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Though watching the movie last night, it was like, oh, there's there are moments where this is winking at itself, um, and where it's you know playing on the tropes of fairy tales and romance in particular. Um, but they come through a lot more clearly, I think, in the book. And a lot of it is stuff that I, you know, I I read this as a satire and I experienced it as a satire of sorts previously and I, I think I was aware that you know the movie was trying to do that as well but having read a lot of romance novels now definitely mm. changed mm -hmm. my reading of the book and of the, the as you're saying those metatextual elements where like the book itself is commenting on romance and fairy tales and then Goldman is commenting on the commenting <laughs> right yes 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 is this a kissing book um, so the book is set up to, you know, it's on the cover, it says The Princess Bride by S. Morgenstern. And Goldman invents this figure of S. Morgenstern and a backstory for his own experience with the book, which is like doubly, and it's, it's super long. Like you read, there's a, it's, the introduction is super long about getting the, the Princess Bride as a book from his teachers, Miss Rajinsky, and how it opened up the world of stories to him. I don't, you know, this is, I'm sure there's a, there's an essay, you know, one segment we could do in this, this uh, format mm -hmm. is uh, where, where are the um, academic, what, what's the name of the <laughs> academic essay you could write out of this? And definitely something about the metatextual, intertextual nature and the frame mm -hmm. within a frame, uh, within a frame, actually, I think, as it, as it turns out. I'm not sure what Goldman is trying to do that, except I think at the most basic level, he's sort of exuberantly yeah. exploring the idea of reading and of stories and of growing up and being a kid and discovery. And you get a tiny bit of that. You, you get the little tiniest mirror arc in Fred Savage's character in the movie where he goes from, you know, basically playing a video game to asking his, his grandfather to come back and read him the story yeah. the next game. So he's a convert, right, to the idea of story and adventure and connection that happens through language and storytelling. And we get just a lot more of that. Mr. Rajinsky, you know, he gives him this book in fourth grade, I believe. Very interesting. My son is in fourth grade. Mm -hmm. When this movie came out, I was in fourth grade. You know, I was in fourth grade. So there's a lot of fourth grades all the way down here. <laughs> Show title. Um, 
So that part is really interesting. I think you're right when you're talking about you, you can watch it with your church group. You can watch it with kids. You know, it's interesting enough uh, for adults. The, the language is fun enough mm-hmm. and the trope stuff is fun enough. But then the, the, the colors and the action and the relationships are all very interesting for kids as well. Um, but this this dance Goldman does around this is about by Morgenstern, and then in the in the course of telling the story of how he found a copy to give his son, he had to search for it in all these antiquarian bookstores, and then he's presenting this copy with his own emendations and excisions and explaining intertextually what he's left out and why he's left it out and what Morgenstern's trying to do. It is pretty wild. The thing he reminds me most of is Don Quixote, mm. where Cervantes is sort of invent. He's saying, I found this text about Don Quixote in this flea market. And there's this whole other layer. Um, I don't know if Goldman had that in mind explicitly, but like there's some other layer of like the story of the text is part of the story, which is really wild to think yeah. about. Yeah, it is. And the way that he layers it, as you were saying, is really interesting and fun. Like I feel like Goldman's whimsy just runs really yeah. deep and he's yeah. having so much fun. There's a real sense to me of play in the narrative of the book that mm. like, I understand why folks thought for a long time it was going to be impossible to make a movie of the book because you have to strip away the frame of the frame of the frame to get yeah. to the film that we have that really works. And I think if they had tried to make a film with all the narrative elements that the book has, it would have been really convoluted and confusing and difficult. And it, I'm glad that the film is written and edited the way that it is. But it's, I think, interesting to see Goldman tell these stories that mash up real life details <laughs> alongside, like real life. There's stuff I have the um, a paperback of the 30th anniversary edition from 2003, and there's stuff in the introduction to the 30th anniversary edition that talks about real details about like trying to cast the movie and how when they he was on set and he knew that in the fire swamp buttercup's dress was going to catch fire he watches robin wright's dress catch fire and he like they have to stop filming because goldman exclaims like oh my god her dress is on fire (laughs) (laughs) like he talks about that but then he also talks about how like he had to go to florin on a research trip yeah it's so interesting (laughs) he he keeps the bit up right 30 years later because i have this illustrated edition which i think is more recent than this Mm. um where he he gets in and all the introductions from all the previous versions are also included yeah uh so like the 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 long con of keeping up this pretense about gildenstern and florin um at this point a gildenstern museum has opened in response to his edition of the princess bride and like at some level like i play some games like this with my kids you've heard about them like the goat that visits us that doesn't Mm -hmm. real and we all know it's not real but there's something fun about keeping up um, the charade together, and I think you're right to note that his wi- his whimsy he gets to he gets to he gets to keep playing with the marionettes over time, and he's like, mm-hmm. look at these marionettes that are also real, yeah, <laughs> but we also I, know they're marionettes together. But what if they're real too? I kind of love the idea of like a younger kid picking up the Princess Bride, and I will say like I think the movie is great for people of all ages. The mm-hmm. book is a lot darker and grittier <laughs> in it's ways true. that you want to be probably older to read. But I like the idea of like a twelve year old mm. picking up the Princess Bride and being like, wait. Is Florin real? Is this whole thing real? Now I have to Google, you know, like Mm -hmm. being potentially, you know, sort of one over into it. And it doesn't feel like Goldman is trying to trick readers so much as bring us in to 
the joke. Um, yeah. Which yeah. I think that is what makes a lot of it work. Um, that he's sort of bringing you along into this story that is larger than life, um, making fun of tropes, but in a loving way. Like clearly he loves an adventure story. He loves a fairy tale. Um, yeah. And it's from that perspective of appreciation, as you were saying, for genre that he's able to poke at it in a, you know, gentle but sharp way. All right. We'll get into the, to the sections here in a minute, but let's take a sponsor break real quick. All right, I think we can bridge out to talk about the major differences between the books and the movie. We've talked for a little bit now about the the Morgan Sternian um, persona that is only appears in the movie when Peter Falk reads The Princess Bride by S. Morgan Stern. Like, it's interesting that William Goldman's, he's excised, right, that it's some sort of text. Uh, presumably, you look at the book, I was thinking about this, because it's what you do when you see it for the 50th time and you want to talk to people about it who also maybe have seen it 100 times. I think... Once you've read the book, you think that Peter Falk's edition is the kind of edition William Goldman is looking for for yeah. son, one of these ancient out of print versions of the Princess Bride. So it's not Goldman's edition with all the with all the stuff that we modern readers would have gotten. It's this kind of fantasy version of the text um, that he was looking for, which I think is is really interesting to think about as well. A book. That's right. When I was your age, television was called books, and this is a special book. It was the book my father used to read to me when I was sick, and I used to read it to your father. And today, I'm going to read it to you. Um, let's see. Where do you want to go, the major? So that that's a big, that, I think that's the biggest structural difference. Like, your experience mm-hmm. is like, oh, there's a lot of stuff about Goldman himself finding this book. And then in the course of reading the story, these asides and footnotes and other things, that's all gone. Some of those, some of the stuff gets relayed particular beats get relayed in Fred Savage interrupting or Falk saying you know she does not die at this time and you get some of those similar echoes from moments in the book but largely all of that is contained and reduced down to the grandson and the and the grandfather and I think it's one of the better uses of a frame I've ever seen I'm of course horribly biased I love this movie <laughs> but it's trying to capture something very simply very archa- uh, archetypally I think it works really, really well. Michelle's note was, what a wonder Fred Savage always has been as a kid actor. But here he is so great. He's so um, winning. And he's so winning. And you believe him. He looks, he acts like an actual kid, but also he's an actor acting like an actual kid. Like, I wonder how hard it was for him to do. Um, So that, that piece is really great. Where else do you want to go in terms of people who haven't read the book, right? I'm assuming many more people have seen the movie. Mm. You know, what what would they be surprised by? What would they find to be maybe something they wish they would have seen in the movie or a surprise that's not as great in the book as it turns out to be in the movie? Oh, that's an interesting way to frame it. I'm I'm surprised, honestly, by more that's in the book that, Mm. that, you know, sort of informed this watching um, of the movie because there's so much compression of the narrative that happens in the story. And I, for as much as I love this movie, I think that some of the details that we don't get in the movie do Mm. make it wanting for something like uh, the Vizzini, Inigo Montoya, Fezzik trio, I think really come off super differently in the film because you just get like Vizzini being mean. He's just this like mean guy who thinks he's in charge and thinks he's really smart and is, you know, not as smart as he thinks because he gets outwitted by, the Dread Pirate Roberts and the Iacane Powder. But in the book, knowing Fezzik's backstory and Inigo's backstory, especially Fezzik, I think we develop a lot more understanding of. Um, And we get uh, segments of the book from 
his perspective and Anigo's perspective and about their childhoods and like how they ended up in this band of thieves mm-hmm. <laughs> with Vizzini. And you also see Vizzini, I think, is much more of a fool um, in the text than he comes across in the movie. Like, he, I think he just comes across kind of as a jerk um, in the film. And like, he's, you know, he's not very nice to Fezzik. He definitely hurts his feelings. But you get to see um, Fezzik as a more full character, especially um, in the book. And it was interesting to watch the film with that with stuff from the book fresh in my mind. Yeah, there wasn't a moment in the course of um, the movie where you could get Fezzik's backstory, and I think yeah. it, it turns it turns Vicini the 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 book turns him into more of a, a Fagin from uh, Oliver mm-hmm. Twist, who's you know he's he's gathered up these two re- outcasts, right? You know, a drunken you know orphan who's you know hell bent on revenge, and Fezzik who is a thought of as a freak by the world whose parents have died, who has no real skills or ability to engage with the normal world. And Vicini himself, who, you know, I didn't make a note of the physical description of Vicini in the book, but he's its own kind of outcast in a way. So they, they are outcasts and they become outlaws. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, it is interesting. Though I have to say, they did shoehorn Inigo's story. And I think Inigo telling Wesley his backstory is maybe my favorite part of the movie. Yeah. I think that's, there's a real chance it is. And so I'm so glad we got to get that. Yeah, I said that. Um, I had that in my notes also that, that I thought that was a really clever way for them to get Inigo's yeah. backstory to us is in those moments where um, where Wesley is just resting from his climb up the cliffs of insanity before, mm-hmm. they, before they have their sword battle. I was really glad for that. I love my father. So naturally, I challenge his murderer to a duel. I fight. Six-fingered man lived me alive. But he gave me this. How old were you? I was 11 years old. When I was strong enough, I dedicated my life to the study of fencing. So the next time we meet, I will not fail. I will go up to the six-fingered man and say, Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Yeah, and you're right. Vizzini, he's described in the book as the humpback and referred to just as the humpback repeatedly. And it's one of these sort of big caricature satire elements that Goldman does that I I think work so much more effectively in the book than in the movie. Um, And a lot of those just aren't present at all in the film, which is totally fine for what the movie does. And I know you want to noodle about is the movie actually a satire? <laughs> but, yeah, um, maybe we'll save that for the end. Yeah, that's that's a good one. Um, in terms of speaking of character descriptions being a lot different, I guess the the character that you'd be less recognizable to everyone involved is Humperdinck. Yeah. Um, in the book, who is a real more of a hunter rather than the preening fancy boy that he that Chris Sarandon, which I think is Chris Sarandon is great. Oh, I think he's, he's fantastic. He in this. he adds a completely different. Um, take on and I don't know that there's any strengths or weaknesses that are better or worse but in the book um, Humperdinck is this barrel chest almost like a Gaston mm-hmm. sort of character I would say maybe a brighter version of Gaston but he's a hunter um, which relates to the zoo of death which is probably the biggest plot sort of action sequence I think really the only major sequence once we pick up the Princess Bride mm-hmm. story itself that is excised I think it could have worked uh, I see why they didn't need it again I'm so in, unable to critique the structure of the movie that I don't even, you know, I can't even do that. Um, you know, but it's more action-y. It doesn't really add too much. Um, uh, uh, Mandy Patinkin and Andre the Giant 
have such wonderful on-screen chemistry, you don't need that much time with them on the screen to believe that they're blood brothers, yeah. right? Which and is kind of what that zoo of death scene, I think, is supposed to bring home to us, right, Rebecca? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. And I think you get so much in the book of the rhyming thing that Fezzik yeah. and ego do together. And it's just so, it just infuses so much warmth into their relationship that I was really glad to be reminded that that happens early in the film as they're like sailing off on the boat. <laughs> and Fezzik is doing his little rhymes under his his breath and they're both sort of poking at Vizzini who hates it when that's happening but that camaraderie I think Goldman did a, a beautiful job adapting the like the best and most like I don't know heartfelt elements of the story yes. into yes. the film that yes. that portray who these characters uh, who these characters are and what the story is about without having to throw in like every last detail of their backstories yeah, um, Fezzik's wordplay was my son's, I think, favorite part yeah. for, on this viewing. He has a nascent disease that he inherited from me about wanting <laughs> to play with language constantly, and so was delighted by really the the nothingness of aggravating Vicini at the same time he and Indigo are, are bonding, which is a very mm-hmm. sort of child's, uh, from you know, with my pulling over on dad, right, with, with my sister about and going just far enough to annoy them, but not so far as to get thrown off the side uh, of, of the boat. Vicini, he can fuss, fuss, fuss. Think you like to scream at us? Probably he means no harm. He's very, very short on charm. You have a great gift for rhyme. Yes, yes. Some of the time. Enough of that! Pussy, are there rocks ahead? If they are, we all be dead. No more rhymes now, I mean it! Anybody want to pin it? Yeah! So the zoo of death, again, they're going to get Wesley from the machine. You don't really need it. It doesn't really add anything. I think from the point of view of how much action and adventure you want to get, you know, one thing I was struck by and noticing the zoo of death is excised again. I've read this book a couple of times is the movie itself doesn't have much action. You get the yeah. wonderful, wonderful, wonderful sword fight. One of the great mm-hmm. sword flights in, in the book, uh, Carrie Ells talks extensively about how much training they did. They did all of that themselves, save for the part where Wesley goes twice around the pole. That was actually <laughs> a stunt person. But they practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced, and it really looks wonderful. And there's one shot especially of Elway's really doing some very quick um, pairing uh, of um, Mandy Patinkin, and he's got this smile on his face, and he makes it look so easy. And I think the character bit of it, where you know we should talk about Carrie Elson, the mm-hmm. man in black, who I think is much richer on screen than is on the page, frankly, is it really shows up there. But after that, your action scene is Indigo and the Count, and I guess the Dread Pirate Roberts on fire. It's just not really an action scene. He's just going up to the castle, and people run yeah. away. Other than that, there's not much. Uh, you know, you get Fezzik and Wesley's encounter. But that's like, that's a dialogue fight, which is, I think, was kind of the point I'm trying to make is most mm-hmm. of the action is the ver, is the verbiage, yeah. right? The, the, there's a lot of talking in the movie. And most so it of is it, all talking. Yeah. And most of it's really fun 
to watch. And it's especially, I think you're right, the sword fighting scene is so wonderful because it's not just sword fighting. Like, I think Mm -hmm. in a a modern version of that scene, which I hope no one tries to remake The Princess Bride, (laughs) like, it just seems like a fool's errand to try. Yes. Um, In a modern version of that scene, it's like sword fighting with a loud soundtrack. And it's so pleasant to watch them, especially Carrie Elwes. Like, he's so assured and it looks so easy. And there's just this swagger where he's like, yeah, I got this. And like, let me be charming and deliver all of these lines at the same time and Mm. he and mandy patinkin do just have such chemistry you can tell they're having a ball that playing out that scene and making it much longer than it than it is um, on the page i thought was so so smart it's such a good choice also for like for how they meet and then for what we're going to see of the rest of wesley his character development as he you know eventually gets to roll down that hill and take Mm. his mask off but I just um, love you seem a decent fellow. I hate to kill you. You seem a decent, decent fellow. fellow. I, I hate, hate to, to die. 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 I know. <laughs> it, it's great. And we'll talk about some of the structural things, like what it is we what is it we talk about when we talk about loving the princess bride. I think is an interesting category to talk about here in a moon. And, and I have some thoughts mm-hmm. about that. The other difference you're going to see, I think this this story, this part of my own recent experience of the book, especially, is is important at least to to read. I, Michelle and I were like, let's. You know, we like to read as family together. Princess Bride, we've seen as a movie. Let's read the book. We've done that a few times. We like the movie. Let's read the book together. And we stopped reading the book together early on, um, mostly because so much of the beginning of the story is about beauty and feminine beauty. And mm-hmm. I think that's the. I think that is probably the strongest satirical note in the book. But it's very hard if you're seven or nine. You don't get it. I think yeah. it's really tough. It's, so we stopped, and maybe some other day, but it was tough, I have to say. And you don't get that in the movie. The movie has no—she's supposed to be beautiful, but it's a very, like, one-line kind of thing. Plus, it's Robin Wright. I mean, it's right. obviously, she's good-looking, so that's not really at issue. But all the stuff about moving from the 20th to the 18th to the 9th most beautiful, beautiful woman and her particular body parts, it felt pretty icky, I have to say, to read aloud to my daughter. Yeah, um, I think, Very strange. I do think that that's an important thing to say. And also, like, Goldman's frame around this, a lot of it doesn't hold up to 2020 standards. No, it's like, no, even as a no. character that Goldman might be putting on for himself in the frame story, which I think is a generous and maybe not entirely earned <laughs> interpretation, mm-hmm. that he, you know, he's f- repeatedly referring to his son being fat in a way that is not cool. Um speaks disparagingly about his wife there's the whole bit where he's in the pool at the hotel in LA and he's trying to figure out how to hit on this starlet and like effectively have a horrible stuff it's not great the frame stuff is not great but like I I think and I've said this on previous shows like I want fiction that was written almost 50 years ago to not hold up you know like I want things to to be different and unacceptable in some ways so we've come a ways since William Goldman wrote that frame story and I do think you and I, I think we were talking offline recently about something mm. else that's a work of satire or maybe a work of satire that people disagree about. And I think it helps to be familiar with the tropes of fairy tales and also with like the issues of standards of beauty that show up, especially in fairy tales and old fashioned romances in order to appreciate the satire. And if you're seven yeah. or nine, there's definitely not that context. Like I do think the uh, the bigger context is important for reading the book in a way that it's not for the mm-hmm. movie because he is like he's talking about analysis of different people's skin colors and there's a whole bit about like Buttercup still has her baby fat but one of her elbows is too bony and you know she's just not... very tough to read aloud to kids. Yeah, That's a she's... Re- 
It is. And like she, Wesley says the thing about like, if, you know, some analogy about like, if your love is a grain of sand, then mine mm. is the whole desert. And like, she's not smart enough to get it because she's just beautiful. And like, it, he's clearly playing with tropes there that yeah. and later on in the book, Buttercup tells Wesley, like, I have a mind, but people only ever talk about my beauty. Why can't you, you know, talk about my mind? And it's just, I think you're right. Like, this would be very difficult to read out loud to kids and to explain to kids. Like, I think the book is for grownups in a way I that... Certainly, I looked into the marketing. It was, it was one of the reasons the book didn't do especially well. It's kind of a no category, right? Like, how would you market this even now? I, I, I think it's pretty tough. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons I think as a success, it makes it a, a category of one also is the same reason that yeah. it could easily be a failure at the same time. <laughs> yeah, and there's stuff like, you know, in romance novels, it's a common trope that they're going to have a marriage of convenience because the hero needs to produce an heir and yeah. the heroine goes along with it. And that's a thing that we see happen with Buttercup and Humperdinck in the book. Um, in the book, we get this description that like after they fall in love, Buttercup is just glowing and that love is what makes her beautiful, that her love for Wesley would not stop growing and people were dazzled when she delivered their milk to to them. And that's a trope from old fashioned romance as well. And I, I do think Goldman is pointing at that and poking at it. He's not reifying it. But if you're not familiar with the thing being sat- uh, satirized, it would be really easy to read this book and think that he is just affirming, you know, that like women are supposed to look a certain way and talk a certain way. And that once they fall in love, they become more beautiful. Yeah. And, and a similar thing has happened. You can see how that ages poorly as the tropes themselves become less and less relevant. I think mm-hmm. for a lot of the Princess Bride book, especially those tropes are less and less relevant. Similar thing, again, to bring up Don Quixote, like you read it modern now and having read it myself and tried to teach in various contexts. You know, if you read it without knowing that Cervantes is basically like riffing on all of these knights errants tales right. if you don't know what that is you're like what is this like don quixote is a fool like why is he doing all this stuff and like wait wait hold so you have to explain all that stuff and the text it just becomes it becomes a, it becomes a different artistic experience when you have to download the stuff to understand yeah. what's going on, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there's like a freshman English paper getting turned in on a college campus somewhere that is like super mad about The Princess yeah. Bride precisely because the elements that it satirizes are much less present in our media today and much less acceptable. And today. you can see the movie move away from some of the more egregious stuff because I was surprised to remember again that there's places in the, in the movie where you know Wesley, as the man in black, raises his hand to mm-hmm. hit Buttercup. In the book, he actually hits her, yeah. uh, which... Not a great look, you know, not not surprisingly. And there's a couple other moments that were dialed back just enough that I think even Goldman and maybe Reiner or whoever was like, okay, we need to come back from the edge of wherever this was mm-hmm. or update it even, you know, 10 or 15 years later, what's going to play differently. So there is that on the page too. So I think the on the whole, the movie is more timeless for leaning a little less hard into the satire of specific versions of tropes of romance and fantasy yeah, especially. I think you're right. And the book makes itself clear that like, that it's an inversion of fairy tale lessons when it like the the whole yeah. point of the story in the book is that life is pain. You mock my pain. Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Don't expect too much because you should just learn to be satisfied with what you have. And these are both things that characters say to each other and themselves. And like these are very clearly not only not the lessons that we still that we even tell kids today, but they're definitely not the lessons of fairy tale. Yeah. And interestingly, Fred Savage's character is just called the grandson in the movie is already 
acculturated to the point where he is familiar enough with the tropes to be surprised and disarmed mm-hmm. when it doesn't go the way he thinks it's going to wait to the point where he underwraps his grandfather says, who gets Humperdinck? Right. You know, Wesley's not dead. You know, all these kinds of things like, no, I know how this works. And if it doesn't work that way, I've not yet converted to this new, I, you know, Weltanschauung, to use the German, like this <laughs> worldview of the Princess Bride. And so I'm having, he's having a little of like narrative whiplash. Like, wait a minute, this is in the genre, but it's not obeying the genre rules that I understand. And hasn't moved to that point of pleasure of finding, you know, that, that frisson between, you know, what you expect and then what's new and realizing that that's part of the pleasure of it is supposed to be, this isn't what you expect. It's in the genre you love mm-hmm. and it's using a lot of the pieces, but you... The delight of it is the surprise and the subversion. I think this is gently subversive without being satirical, and we'll get to that. Grandpa, Grandpa, wait, wait. What did Fezzik mean he's dead? I mean, he didn't mean dead. Well, this is only faking, right? You want me to read this or not? Who gets Humperdinck? I don't understand. Who kills Prince Humperdinck? At the end, somebody's got to do it. Is it Inigo? Who? Nobody. Nobody kills him. He lives. You mean he wins? Jesus, Grandpa, what did you read me this thing for? What does the movie do better? Almost everything, frankly. I mean, I don't know. I'm no shade to the book because Goldman wrote the screenplay, so he gets credit for both. Yeah, and that yeah. the second that the second crack at it was better than the first, I think, is actually. A credit to Goldman and the movie making process uh, writ large. Am I, is that un, unfair? Is there anything no, that jumps out as being especially better? Maybe is the way to. Oh, go? I just think the chemistry that we get between the characters because yeah. the narrative is so much more compressed in in the movie is magic. Like it, everybody on screen together is just sparkling, and there mm. are some really I thought fun and surprising smaller performances. Like I always forget, and then I'm delighted to remember how just freaking fantastic billy crystal is he comes he, in like a supernova just he blows in because he doesn't look like billy crystal in that miracle no, max right. outfit and the whole that the, like those five minutes on screen are wonderful um the man who plays the albino in down in the yeah. pit of despair right. has this wonderful sort of he's like very much in on the joke and i think we see mm-hmm. that come through in the performance but i yeah i agree it's it's so much fun, watch, especially Carrie Elway's, watching him and watching Robin Wright and the chemistry that they had together, which apparently was helped along by the fact that they were smitten with each other during the filming. And like, how could you not be? Look at them. The, the hair, their hair game in the in the stable, just off the bat, <laughs> Carrie Elway's coming in with like romance, like hair and his eyes all over the place. And he's wearing, yeah, I, I think... I can see how making this movie, if I, if I, you know, I like to, as you know, like to think about adaptations. If I just had this book, I'm like, I don't know how this is going to work. I'm not even sure I would love the book that much. I think it'd be interesting. But I think Elway's is the sun around which so much of the movie working revolves around. I think Mandy Patinkin's a wonder. I think, you know, Andre the Giant's screen presence, his, his gentleness and size, mm-hmm. that combination and warmth that he exudes, even if you can barely understand what he's saying. Wallace Shawn is... The best. He's just fantastic. You know, you get Sarandon's great. Robin Wright, frankly, the Buttercup's not a great part. I'm sorry. It's it's not a great part compared to everything else everyone's doing, but she's wonderful in in what little she gets to do. And she's wilting, but then she grows some spine at the end and she has some moments of of real feistiness that's great. But Elway, Elway encapsulates the spirit of the movie, even his own performance, right? Of that 
of that of smiling but taking it seriously mm-hmm. at the same time. He's not in the Robin Hood Men of Tights of Always Later, which is also a lot of fun. Right. But he but he he's in the movie. He's not outside the movie, right? Yeah, Commenting on he is he, in the movie. He's in it. He's just charming and swaggering and delighted by whatever is in front of him and yeah. fully in it. And I think I think we have to talk about the set also for a second yes. because yeah. there is a version of this movie that's impossible to make or that cost like twenty five jillion dollars to produce because they're trying to make everything high tech. They're mm-hmm. trying to make the shrieking eels high tech, and they're trying to make the rodents of unusual size look believable, and they're trying to make the fire swamp look real and the pit of despair is like a crazy feat of engineering and I thought it was so smart that everything is super stripped back like when you look if you if you pay attention to the set in the sword fighting scene it's like are they even outside or are they on no they're in a set and they're like styrofoam blocks painted to look like rocks you know right they're on a like they're clearly on a set that like is intentionally stripped back Mm. and the pit of despair looks like a caricature of a pit of despair that yeah. you would draw if someone told you like what this book was about. And mm-hmm. like, I just find, you know, the, the ROUSs are ridiculous and wonderful and they made the right choices there to like, to let some of the sillier elements mm-hmm. of the story just be silly and to let the set, which is like to let all these scenes, which are ju- really just backdrops to these characters having fun with each other, really just be backdrops. Like there's nothing distracting about any of the sets or about any of the scenery. They're just there, you know, the yeah. swamp looks ridiculous. You're not actually scared when they're in this fire swamp because, no. like, you know, you can see the thing is just going to pop up. They're going to jump over it. It's all going to be fine. And letting the letting those elements of the story be jokes about themselves, I think, was really, really smart. Yeah, it. I, you know, and there's a version of this. I wonder if someone's tried to make a play or musical out of it because it could easily because the action is language. And by not having to worry too much about, you know, whether because of budgets or active choices they made, not having to worry too much about like trying to make it into the three musketeers that happens mm-hmm. a little bit later where there's like all these weird, crazy fights and you're on these locations by, by stripping it down, the scenes become scenery and the sets becomes s- settings yeah. for the characters to be characters. So you're focusing a lot more, you got more close-ups and medium shots on the characters delivering the dialogue and the dialogue gets to sparkle. Why not? Elway's delivering Goldman's dialogue is wondrous. It just it is. is. It's so good. He's and anything just... that detracts from that is a minus in in the movie's point of view and in a directorial point of view too. And you you know, Wesley capture you know, he 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 checks the box that my great English professor James Crother once said is like, you know a great character is you miss them when they're off stage. Yeah. And in the moments here, even as great as Indigo is and Fezzik are you miss Wesley when he's when he's off you just miss him you just I mean he's just dreamy yeah like well I I mean yeah 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 I think Wesley in the book is is a dialed up satire of Mm -hmm. a romance or fairy tale hero and Carrie always embodied that perfectly like he's just dreamy at 11 you know like just dreamy and he saves her and he loves her and he's gonna you know swoop her off her feet just in time to jump over the flaming thing in the fire swamp Mm. and he just got it like it's just pitch perfect for what that character is supposed to be and he makes i think everybody else rises to the occasion around him and you can it seems like they're having fun in those scenes with each other yeah especially man him and wallace sean in the he and wallace sean in the scene with the iocane powder i just can never get over how much fun that is to watch them deliver those lines at each other. And I was mm-hmm. reading in my in my own uh, 
you know, lazy internet research about this <laughs> last night that apparently Danny DeVito was originally favored for what you the... can see in casting, but also yeah. would have been horror. I mean, not horrible. It just wouldn't have been this. It, it, it would have been, been yeah. and that uh, Wallace Shawn was really nervous about mm-hmm. that he was like going to lose the job because he wasn't Danny DeVito. Um, and Danny DeVito looks more Sicilian, than, and this character is described as the Sicilian, you know, repeatedly than um, than Shawn. So he was just like worried, and apparently he's like sweating bullets through the filming of this scene, and Carrie always is just like hanging with him trying to make it okay Um, and that really you know warmed my heart to know that Vizzini I think is another one where the glow up from the book um not not physically an attractiveness Mm -hmm. of just like just bringing a vitality that you're missing I think Mandy Patinkin is great but I think the on-page Indigo Montoya is pretty close to what you get from Mandy Patinkin like he does a lot with a lot uh, frankly, but there's a lot there to work with. Andre the Giant is, plays Andre the Giant, and I think Goldman even talks about writing Fezzik, the book, with like Andre the Giant sort of in mind, um, and he gets that. Anything else the movie does especially better before we take a break and then move on to best worst moments and some of the other um, categories we proceed? I think the stuff, well, the, the Miracle Max stuff with Max and Valerie is like, it's fun on the page, but it is just phenomenal on screen yeah. with with Billy Crystal and, um, and Carol Kane and just how silly they are. And like her chasing him around the table going, comforting, 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 comforting. <laughs> like it's just... Ever since Prince Humperdinck fired him, his confidence is shattered. Why'd you say that name? You promised me that you would never say that name. It's just that's so fun. And then there's that whole like weekend at Bernie's vibe when yeah. Wesley is sort of revived after taking the pill that Inigo and Fezzik are just carrying him around. And he's they're all just playing it up. It's really fun. Um I think the movie conveys the sense of fun about this in a way that like you that doesn't require you to be familiar with anything else. And the book, you need to bring some like cultural context to understand what the book is trying to do in terms of being funny. The movie just does it itself. I think that darkness that you get, you were talking about earlier that you get, especially around Vizzini and Indigo and, and um, Fezzik is altered, not really because of the character beat. So you get less of it because you can tell that, that Andre the giant and Manny Patinkin, are having fun so that yeah. they don't seem so sad, right? They don't yeah, seem so pitiful. Yeah. It's not so desolate because they're having fun and they, at least uh, they have each other. Okay, let's take a quick break and we'll, we'll come back. We've talked a lot about the cast already, inevitably so. It is really fantastic. I mean, the other, you know, some of the bit players, as you said, the albino, um, Christopher Guest at Count Rugen really struck me this time as being a wondrous. <laughs> Um, a, a wondrously serpentine, cool <laughs> creation, and like the um, most that really contained works. that Christopher Guest has ever been. I know. To see it later, <laughs> you're like, "What is this? <laughs> like, is he on drugs? Like, right. what is going on here?" Beautiful, isn't it? Took me half a lifetime to invent it. I'm sure you've discovered my deep and abiding interest in pain. Present, I'm writing the definitive work on the subject. So I want you to be totally honest with me on how the machine makes you feel. This being our first try, I'll use the lowest setting. Uh, so he's really great. Um, in terms of if, if you were going to recast anyone, I really have oh. a hard time coming up with anybody. Uh, the, the Buttercup character... 
I wish there was more there mm-hmm. to do with. She doesn't get the fun lines necessarily. She gets some good lines, but they're much more earnest. She didn't. She's not as in on the fun of it as everyone else yeah. seems to be. So th- that's not about Robin I mean, Wright, who I think is great. It's it's the part that I wish was a little bit had more of an angle on it somehow. Yeah, I agree, and I think you know it it works okay in the book that Buttercup is kind of a a flat character because satire can do that Um, but it's it's not obvious that's what's happening to her on screen and it for sure does not pass the Bechdel test like none of this (laughs) this is one of my notes too we should do it now I mean this is the widest movie I think I've ever seen and it would be interesting I think to see a a perspective change on the Princess Bride like something from Buttercup's perspective in the way that like I still haven't watched the new pan movie but I'm going to um that could be interesting we uh, mandy patinkin is one of the just undeniable delights of this movie and i don't think he get he gets cast as a spaniard with a spanish accent like Mm -hmm. we're not casting a jewish guy to play a spaniard in 2020 for a lot of really good reasons um and he's it's also impossible to picture anyone else in that role um i was really stuck like i racked my brain trying to think about who could play Wesley in a 2020 adaptation of this and sell that like perfect sort of Errol Flynn thing that he channels. I have one thought, but it's a little bit of a different spin. Mm. Um, and, it, and it relates to, I think if, if, if you were ever to do the princess bride again, you do a lot with gender bending and race yeah. bending this original, right? I mm-hmm. think I'm interested. Can Zendaya be the woman <gasps> in black? Yes. Cause she does, she verbally very adroit and mm-hmm. can play different attitudes. And maybe he's more, he, he's, she's less of an ironist than Carrie Elway's Man in Black. Her Woman in Black would be more uh, hipstery, maybe, or more shruggy. I don't know. I think there's something interesting there in thinking about it from I a like different that. vibe. Because she, like, I, you know, I've seen her recently in the Spider Man movies where she's playing a version of a trope, but doing something interestingly with it. Now, give her the lead of this, I think, is interesting, and then make Buttercup, either you could keep her as a woman, make her a man, move everybody around, move the chess mm-hmm. pieces around a little bit. No indictment of the cast of the movie we have. I think it would just be a updating our cultural vision in a way that I think you could do a lot of the same interesting work that The Princess Bride wants to do around tropes, um, but then you make race and gender mm-hmm. part of the gag or part of the pinata that you're trying to to break open and see what spills out. Yeah, I love that. And I think that's an important point, too, that the way satire of fairy tales looked in 1973 and 1987 is really yeah. different from how satire of fairy tales looks and from what, you know, follow-ons and gender bending of things looks now. And that's really wonderful. Like, culture has moved and developed mm-hmm. in ways that um, we're not just, re- like, remaking these old stories or criticizing them by remaking them with, like, other casts that are completely heteronormative. We're right. doing it in a different way. And hopefully, you know, like, at a... 60-year anniversary of The Princess Bride or a 100-year anniversary of it, there's a new take on it that's even beyond what we can fathom for it now. And which thing is Do really you want to hear my, my short pitch for my updated, my, my 2022 version of The Princess Bride movie? Do you want to hear what <laughs> Absolutely. it is? Absolutely. It's a, it's a performing arts high school who's putting on a play version of The Princess Bride. <laughs> So you get the metatextual stuff, but then you Mm -hmm. can play with the casting because you don't have the right, quote unquote, right ages and genders and nationalities. Uh So you've got to mix and match by necessity. So that's my pitch. I think you should just put them at a drama summer camp. Same, same, yeah, same, Mm -hmm. same kind of idea, right? Um, I think that would be a lot of fun. 
Uh, okay, these are impo- I don't know what to do. Best worst moments. <laughs> Let's start with the worst. I think that's maybe the most interesting thing for me to look mm-hmm. at it as from mm-hmm. the most um, unusual angle. Do you have a worst moment here? Ooh, I don't really think so. There's there's just stuff I love a little bit less. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll put a. I'll give you a couple, and you. I'll throw them at you, and you see if you, how hard you want to hit them. Um, All right. I'm not sure about the buttercup suicide again mm. here at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think our attitudes about this are a little bit different, maybe more nuanced, more subtle. I'm not sure what she's going to do. I think you know the stakes become high. You get a, it sets up a very nice reversal. I'm just not so sure that it's that's played mm-hmm. for a laugh about ruining your breast, I guess. You know, I, yeah, my my, yeah. Hang, my, my, yeah, my nose went up a little bit there, I have to say. Yeah, that's um, probably that I think that's probably either written out or played differently. Yeah. Now. And but also like her threatening that, you know, if you don't let me be with my one true love, I'll die, like is really an inversion of a fairy tale situation. Right. Yeah. Um that if you play it straight, it's a problem. And if you're pointing at tropes of romances, it becomes something different. I think the movie doesn't quite critique her decision enough to, for mm. me to feel like the way the music works, the way she's lit and shot there. I think that's played pretty earnest. Like she's yeah. about to kill herself and the movie yeah. isn't critiquing her decision yeah, right there, which I, I think is a problem. Yeah, I think that's one of the weaknesses of what's normally a strength for this film of you know letting some of the commentary slide yeah, right yeah. uh we talked about you know if this is made differently today i think everyone involved sees it or i hope everyone involved sees mm-hmm. that you can't you don't want to cast in quite this way it's not it's not yeah. whatever it's not what anybody wants I, right yeah now. i read that Whoopi goldberg lobbied for the role of buttercup and i love that alternate universe <laughs> i'd watch you know not all of them would be good but i'd watch a million alternate universe versions of the princess bride just to see it spun out um mm-hmm. in different ways i can't really think of anything else that really sticks out to me as the worst moment um from there the best moments is impossible i, I don't even know really how to handle this though i i did f- i did have find myself feeling in the moment of indigo telling wesley a story mm-hmm. part of it is you know the sword fight's coming so you're looking forward to that but then the warmth, you, you get a lot of character building from the man in black there, which I think is something that struck me this time, is his interest in Indigo's story and sympathy for him, even though they're about to duel, g- gives the, a, a different complexity to the whole situation. He asks questions. The mm-hmm. whole thing is, I've never seen its equal, talking about a sword, really admiring of the whole situation. That scene really sticks out to me. Ames, my, my son, spoke up. Um, he loved the scene where... Uh, Indigo's in the forest asking his father to guide his sword mm. and he goes over and hits the sword and he thinks he's failed and he leans on it. it's worked he just like yeah. the whole little scene That's he perfect. really likes so I thought that would pass that along Father I have failed you for 20 years now our misery can end somewhere somewhere close by is a man who can help us I cannot find him alone I need you. I need you to guide my sword. Please. Guide my sword. But um, what do you have, Rebecca? What are your, you you know, you get to, you're watching clips. What do you especially pause for if you come across it? I'm watching Miracle Max and Valerie. Just forever. It's so much fun. And Billy Crystal making that joke about, mutton lettuce and tomato sandwiches is like 
Which was an ad lib apparently in yeah, the book. He says it better drops. than cough drops, which is also yeah. funny, but it's not as funny as Billy yeah. Crystal and I doing like that. I as I was watching it last night, I was thinking like, how much is on the cutting room floor? Like, what yeah. else did Billy Crystal improv in this moment? But I I was reading like Reiner would have to leave the room, and William Goldman would have to leave the room. That like they were all cracking up um, <laughs> as the, that scene is getting filmed, and you can even see little moments where Mandy Patinkin is trying not to break. <laughs> yes. He's just so delighted by it. I think you know I'm watching that for. I love the moment when he roll when Wesley rolls down the hill and says, as you wish. Yeah. And like one of the things I've said forever in my life is that, oh, my sweet Wesley, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> I just I love that. And then that like swoony moment at the bottom mm. of that. Like, it's not a hill. That's like a mountain. They fall yes. down. And I know yes. that Rowan had some. Crit- yeah, <laughs> she she's like, that. you know, Wesley's trained. Maybe he could survive. You know, was he getting up? He, she's worried about Buttercup's structural integrity. After rolling down that hill, she hasn't trained. She really does a couple of head over tea kettles there at the very end, which doesn't, you're going fast. Also, shouts to the stunt people. Right. I was watching carefully if those are real people because earlier, when they're going, the, the clip, those wide shots of the Cliffs of Insanity, that's mm-hmm. all a rig and all the people, it's like a real human with their arms and like a winch. But then there's dummies standing in yeah. for Buttercup and Walsh on, and you can, in my big TV now, you can totally mm. see the dummies look horrible, <laughs> but it's delightful. But these are real humans going down this. As you're right, extremely, extremely steep embankment, um, and I hope everyone turned out okay. But yeah, that's that's pretty great as well. I the Indigo Montoya finally mm-hmm. getting his duel with Count Rugen. I mm-hmm. think some of the best. The, the music is not a, hor- a horrible strength of this movie. It's synth. I think that it's one of the places they cut some budget. But you get, because most of it's pretty bad when it's good, it really sticks out. And the when he crosses swords with Count Rugen and the, the, the music strikes with their blades crossing, mm-hmm. bump, bump, bump. It's just a wonderful scene. You get several nice inversions and reversals uh, in that scene. And then, of course, the classic, this is moves us in the... I'm not sure... I think probably Hello, My Name is Inigo Montoya, You Killed My Father, Prepare to Die is probably the number one draft pick, and it's great. It just It it holds up. He says it six times in a row with different inflections of sort of a crescendo (laughs) of passion and an invigoration as he's come back from the knife blade. Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Hello! My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Stop saying that! Power to promise me that. All that I have and more. Please offer me everything I ask for. Anything you want. I want my father back, you son of a bitch. It's fantastic. It's thrilling. It's the most sort of action swell crescendo that you get, which is really fascinating. Yeah, and it really is like 
the thing we've been waiting for yes. in the whole story as for yes. Inigo to get this moment. And that's really, I think that's really clear in the book. And I loved that journey of like really sitting with him and waiting for him to find this guy and get to exact his revenge and seeing it happen on screen. It's, it's just such a good payoff. You know, mm-hmm. like Wesley and Buttercup is fun and romantic and silly and they're just like so freaking beautiful. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it just, they're fun to watch. It's nice to just see them be happy and in love and whatever. Um, but watching Mandy Patinkin take on, like, I think Inigo Montoya has the most real depth of the characters yeah, yeah. here and the most motivation for what he's doing. Like, this is a lifelong drive to find mm. this count and take him down. And seeing that happen is so satisfying. And it's just one of the great lines. You know, it's just one uh, of just, the great... It's great. It's great. And I think Goldman knew it, too, because in the book, it's all over the place, too. Even yeah. more so than the movie. And he says it quite often in the movie. And I think one of the neat tricks of, I think, the book and the movie is that we hate Rugen just as much as mm-hmm. Inigo does for what he's done to, Les- to Wesley, right? Yeah. Of this this coldness, this callousness, you want to see him bleed. You want to see him experience the subject of his interest here at mm-hmm. the end. Um, and surprisingly bloody, actually, my my daughter, who's seven, doesn't like, I mean, who likes blood, but she's especially sensitive to the appearance of blood. And they really let him bleed. Yeah. Indigo's bleeding out of his gut and out of his shoulders, and everyone's bleeding out of their faces, and they leave it on the costumes, and it it dries and looks like real blood. And um, it's that is... Holy, in that moment, that scene, the movie is wholly earnest. There's mm-hmm. no satire. There's no winking. There's no smirking. Um, and we get the one swear, I think, is one of the great surprises. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at, at the end there, my kids, you know, perk up because we don't <laughs> we try not to swear too much. Um, but you do, you know, he's been, Goldman's been withholding any kind of foul language, and it really pays off. It shows you what you can do um, with restraint. And then when you finally let it crack a little bit, it has even more of the impact. Um, anyway, then as you wish, I guess, <sighs> inconceivable. I think as you wish, inconceivable, and hello, my name is Inigo Winter. Those three, I think, stand above and beyond in the cultural awareness. Is there anything else that joins that category from just this is, you know, in a hundred years that this movie is talked about, those would be like the memes um, that, that, that exist still. Yeah, I think those are the ones, you know, the as you wish people love inconceivable mm-hmm. it's interesting to me that inconceivable gets pulled out because we stop hearing that like relatively early yeah he didn't fall inconceivable you keep using the word i don't think it means what you think it means never go against a sicilian when death is death on the is line on the right. yeah. and also never start a land war in asia like those are things that have been in my personal lexicon for a long time um that are in mm-hmm. that sort of secondary level of just eminently <laughs> quotable mm. stuff um Man, I just have a moment for Wallace Shawn. Like, it's impossible to picture anybody else. I was that. trying to develop like a, a thirty-second monologue about the, the screen presence persona of Wallace Shawn because he's he he something about him. He's he's very very short. He's bald. He's not an attractive fella, um, and it's played for a laugh in uh, Manhattan, the Woody Allen movie where, mm-hmm. you know, he's supposed to be this great Lothario that, you know, once you, that, that Meryl Streep's been hung up on. And then the revelation is this Wallace Shawn. You're like, oh my God. But there's something endearing. And he plays, he plays, he is smart, but he plays smart. And he sounds, he's got a lisp and a very strange mm-hmm. face. But there's something about, you can't bridle that sense of intelligence that's very interesting and, and it works winningly for Vicini. Yeah. And his veins pop and his whole face contorts mm-hmm. and I, like almost blows. It feels like he's going to pop his whole face off when he gets mad I or excited that, at the end. It's one of those moments where watching 
like watching a character or an actor in this case, but it happens with, you know, like mus musicians and per like other kinds of performers is when they are doing the thing with their whole body, mm. you know, like he's not just acting with his face. It's not just a great delivery of lines, but like every like ounce of him comes forward to deliver this character. And mm. he, I think he's just, he uses that. He's very self-aware and he uses that to such great benefit for this character. He also plays that teacher in Clueless. That's like right. the very yes. sweet, yeah. dorky, older guy that they're going to set up on the dates. And he, I think Wallace Shawn just was really smart to recognize like what kinds of characters he was going to be cast as, but to then really make them, to make the most of them and make them really fun to watch um, and to let us be in on the joke with him. And mm -hmm. um, I have one lol for 2020 out okay of the, the, the quote is it the masks the masks. it is masks so terribly Ames picked that up too it's so i think funny. everyone will be wearing them in the future <laughs> wrong kind of mask though wesley <laughs> gotta go over the top here's Just, i i wish i could know have what it would be like to watch it for the first time because uh, speaking of you know you you brought up the great point of I think we care as much about Indigo's story as we do about Wesley's and Buttercup's. Maybe more because we f we feel like Fred Savage, we know they're going to end mm -hmm. up together. Yeah. I feel like maybe on first blush, you don't know, especially when he takes the knife, how's this going to play out? Is Indigo mm -hmm. going to get the count? Is he not? Is the count going to get away? Um, and that's really surprising to see there as well about how the if you d if you kind of know the tropes, what are the stakes, right? And Indigo provides some stake. Fezzik provides some stake. And then the nature of what's going to happen with Leslie and Buttercup really um, provides some stake, too. But I'd love to know, do you, we know immediately when you see the man in black that's Wesley? Does everyone know immediately in the movie theater, oh, that's that's Wesley from before? Mm. Hard to know, so. right? Yeah. Yeah, weird. Um, another one of those I was wondering about, too, is if you've never seen him before... How do you feel about Fred? Sa are you say are you making the same objections Fred Savage is making? Like in the are you feeling like wait mm. Wesley's not really dead? He she didn't really <laughs> marry Humperdinck, right? Like I think you know as a movie as a movie goer who's sufficiently if you've seen enough, mm -hmm. you can pick up on moments when the movie's trying to tell you something. But also when you're you're being fed a false uh, a red a false herring a red yeah. flag <laughs> a, a red herring or a false flag, you know when those are like okay I know what the, we're creating false stakes or whatever here, mm -hmm. but I would love to know how much doubt there was about all of it because now I don't know I can't yeah, I can't I've, get around it but um, no, that's I, one I'd really like to see as and, well. Yeah, it's interesting too since this movie now has survived a couple generations of viewers and fans like yeah i think probably most people are encountering it the way your kids are encountering it where their mm -hmm. parents are showing it to them and they're getting like not just the media itself that they're watching but they're getting like your commentary and michelle's commentary mm -hmm. and this c context and framework around what this story is and why you love it and what makes it good like there's all the sort of table talk around the movie that i don't i don't yeah. even know if it's even like if a, like if martians landed and we showed them the princess bride and they had to make sense of it that would be fascinating i don't know how you get like a pure response to a first viewing of it at this stage where you're most likely to engage with it for the first time if somehow you've made it to your adulthood with never seeing it through like the context of a relationship with someone who's mm -hmm. showing it to you i would think like you know i 
I have a couple acquaintances who were homeschooled and there are like big gaps in their cultural and like in their cultural knowledge of like never having watched a certain TV show or never having seen a certain movie and then trying to go back and watch those things <laughs> fresh and understand like why your peers loved this thing 20 years ago is a really fascinating exercise. Yeah. Uh, let me run just through it. I mean, you probably have, I mean, the, the quotes, I mean, these are, mm-hmm. like I said, to find that you like the Princess Bride is like saying you like the Beatles or you breathe oxygen. Like there's nothing, makes nothing special. But here are my couple of quotes that have have wormed their way (laughs) into, you know, my available dialect, um, especially with Michelle, who both, you know, she and I have watched the movie together so many times that we even know each other's favorite bits. That word, I know, think it means what you think it means. Have fun Mm -hmm. storming the cast. You think it'll make it. Not a million. Little less a half hour. Um, uh, Let's see. What else do I have here that we haven't said? Already, uh, life is pain, Highness. Anyone yeah. who says otherwise is selling you something. That's one of the ones that's interesting because in the book, most of the lines we know from the movie that are in the book are said by the same character. That one's different. There's actually a different character that yeah, says that. Yeah, it's Fezzik's mom says that. Yeah, Fezzik's mom. To Tough yeah. thing for a mom to say. Good lord. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, <laughs> there was that. I think there's a really nice moment where you get the first real sense of Buttercup as something other than a trope of the the fair maiden. Um, when she jumps out of the boat, which I think mm-hmm. is a surprise, into the screeching eels, which has changed from sharks in the book, which I think is a wonderful change. Um, she, you know, uh, Vicini says, I, 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 I bet you think you're brave. And she says, only compared to some. <laughs> which is very, very nice. Um, so that one I really hold on to. Also, I was surprised the first time I read the book to find that uh, Mawage and Wav Twu Wav, <laughs> like the lisp is built into the book, which that's I was, that's a very that unusual thing to do in a book like this is to play, and it works on screen too. So, um, that one is, that one is always Wav Twu Wav, something that comes up from time. I've been misspelling Mawage every time I've tried to quote this for like a decade. Yeah, that's really funny. I like Fezzik's moment sort of early on when, uh, Vizzini has told him to go back and kill the man in black and do it your way. And Fezzik <laughs> yes. says, my way is not very sportsmanlike. Unemployed <laughs> in Greenland. <laughs> um, let's but, see. Um, but just, oh, and there's not a lot of money in revenge. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Don't rush a miracle. We get a rotten miracle. Uh, let's see. I think that's the worst thing I've ever heard. How marvelous when Count Rugen <laughs> figures out who Indigo Montoya is. Um, I love my uh, Indigo. I, yeah, Indigo is great. I think Mandy Patinkin, um, probably in hindsight, if you're picking someone's career to have out of this, if you, I think you pick Mandy Patinkin's out of this. I, I think so. And he it seems to be just a great sport and very aware of the gift that he's yes. gotten from being famous because of this movie. Yes, that, like, yes. For every day for his entire life, multiple people are quoting, my name is Aniko Montoya, you killed my father. Michelle, <laughs> one time when we were living in New York, was walking around the village and um, was walking along and she, she stopped at the edge of the sidewalk to cross the street and next to her was Wallace Shawn on a phone oh. uh, before the iPhone, like clearly trying to get directions and figure out where he was. And she says, it took every fiber in my <laughs> being not to just scream inconceivable right down on his face. <laughs> yeah, Mandy Patinkin was in Richmond a few years ago when they were filming Homeland here. And yeah. he and I were on the same flight to New York. And I had to text my friends from the gate to be like, tell me that I should not go quoting yes. Go Montoya right. to Mandy right. Patinkin. <laughs> it's really, really funny there. Okay, things we Googled. We've done some of this. Is there any, any, anything you want to bring out? I guess you the know, Mandy Patinkin piece, he was the most famous 
actor going into it interesting, though Andre the Giant was the most famous person because of his wrestling career. And apparently Patinkin was a real hard ass on Elway's about practicing their sword flights. So he was a real, you know, drill sergeant and really brought a lot of professionalism and dedication to it. Elway's and Robin Wright, I mean, even in the credits, it says introducing Robin Wright. They're very, yeah. very new. Carrie Ellis, I think, had one relatively significant movie role before that. Um, I'm not sure what else to say on the things yeah. we Googled. Anything else you want to throw there? I didn't go Googling for a lot of information. I did learn that the movie was nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Song. So like that's interesting, as you noted, that there are places where the music is God, not the great. the song is terrible, Rebecca. Did you, <laughs> did you list stick around for the song at the end? No. Oh, my <laughs> God. Um and the, some of the casting stuff is interesting. I know Goldman said he at one point that he really liked Carrie Fisher for the role of Buttercup. And you can could've see... Could have worked. Could've yeah, worked. that totally could have worked. Carrie Fisher of that era could have worked. I think Danny DeVito could have been just a different Vizzini. Yeah. But I'm not... I wouldn't trade Wallace Shawn for anything. No. Um, Liam Neeson auditioned for Fezzik. And Goldman was like, you're only 6'5". <laughs> it is. You see those scenes, Honor the Giant. I mean, there's a reason he's called Andre the Giant. Yeah, but he's just so big. He's apparently, so big. Yeah, apparently they also talked to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar about playing oh. Fezzik, which is interesting to think about a tall, skinny Fezzik. Yeah. Um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar just, is so naturally smart on screen. I don't know. Yeah. You'd have to do it differently. Yeah. Um, you'd have to have a different kind There's of just so much going on, on behind the eyes there. Yeah. It would have been really different. That, um, then just a charming thing, like a little anecdote that I came across in my wander through the Googles was that it would get really cold when they were filming on mm. set, especially you know when they were outside in England doing some of these scenes. And when Robin Wright was really cold, Andre the Giant would put mm. one of his giant hands on her head to keep her warm because one of his hands could cover her whole sc- skull. Um, uh, Andre the Giant meat hat that you guys put on there. Yeah. I had read that before I watched the movie, and there's a moment where his hand is on someone else's head in the film that I was like, oh, yeah, that totally works. Like, he's just palming it like a basketball, but like the notion of him just sort of gently holding her head and keeping her warm really warmed my heart. Yeah, there's a scene I, when Fezzik comes to get Indigo out of the drunken Thieves Forest, mm-hmm. or I guess encounters him because he's a member of the Brutes God. Indigo puts his hand in Andre the Giant's hand. Yeah. And in that moment realizes who he's dealing with because there's only one other person of that scale yeah. um, mm. that, that, that it could be. I don't have anything else that's mm. really worth going into here, though I do recommend if you like the movie or even just like audiobooks and Hollywood stuff, the, 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 as you wish. It's just it's such great. a delight on it audio. Is. I really can't recommend it highly enough. I think the Joyce Carol Oates Ono Award we've already talked about, it's, it's the racial stuff mm-hmm. in the – it just can't be the way yeah, it is. <laughs> there's that. It can't be the way it is. And I do think the um, Wesley even raising his hand to Buttercup yeah, doesn't yeah. sell in 2020 as you know a critique on the form. <laughs> and even if you, in hindsight, realize he would never do it, even to threaten it, playing yeah. his part of the man of yeah. it's it's no bueno anymore. Yeah. You can't do yeah. that anymore. Uh, I mean, this is so obvious to me. It's not even that interesting. You save the movie, right? I mean, I yeah. mean uh, there's nothing... You don't lose anything. You gain a lot. Well, you lose some, but you gain so much in the movie that it does all the work that the book um, really wants to do. Mm-hmm. Who needs to be recast? Who needs more time? Who would stick around in the same role if there were a sequel? It's been so long now that yeah. I guess Billy Crystal, you make, he don't, doesn't need makeup anymore to play Miracle <laughs> Max, I guess. Miracle Max is on like his fourth wife. Yeah. And right, right. he's jaded and he gets some of Harry's lines from when Harry met Sally. <laughs> yeah. 
That's good. I <laughs> in like the mashup that. of my dreams. Yeah. Man, also I, a Rob Reiner joint, interestingly yeah, enough. I don't think anybody needs to be recast. I really, no. I Googled the um, actor who played the albino was named Mel Smith. And I would have taken a lot more of him on screen yep. just because he's having a, a ball. Apparently a stand-up comedian in his own right. Um, mm. Who brings a lot in not very much time, but terrible yeah. makeup on a giant HDTV, a lot of a lot of facial sores I don't yeah, need well, to need in high definition. I, but I, I, read, I get what they're doing. I feel like he should get an extra. He he passed away in 2013, and I feel like he should get an extra merit badge because I did read that he was. It turned out he was allergic to the pigment in the contact lenses oh that they had God. him wearing. So he spent like the whole filming of the movie being deeply uncomfortable. Oh man, deeply uncomfortable and looking like that. That's yeah. a tough beat for a for an actor. Um, I get, you want to talk about, is it satire? Like anything else we want to do at the end here? Hmm. I don't feel like the movie, I don't think the movie is trying to be satire and I don't think it is satire. No, I don't think it is either. I mean, I guess the, the distinguish I would make is that satire implies some critique, mm-hmm. right? Necessarily. And that's why I think in the book, the stuff of Buttercup's beauty and, you know, beauty, 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 beauty doesn't really hold up great now but i think that's the most satirical piece about like making fun of the fantasy romance trope of how beautiful the woman has to be to even mm-hmm. rate right whereas right. wesley is good looking but you know I, he's just good looking though the countess seems to take an active interest and there's it felt like that was going to go in a different direction there for a minute mm-hmm. um when taking it but i think what it is it's it's the thing that it's at is a comedy it's a fantasy yeah. romance that's funny which mm-hmm. I think people sometimes mistake. Satires don't have to be funny. Not everything that's a satire is comedic, and not all comedies are satire. And I think in trying to figure out how to think about Prince's Bride and His Honor, they reach for satire because it's a funny version of something that generally isn't funny. Ergo, it must be making fun of it. I think it's reveling in the tropes. Now, it's yeah. it's improvising on top of them, but an, improv- an improvisation on top of uh, April in Paris is not a critique of April in Paris, right? I mean, it, it just isn't. Yeah, um, I think it's it's playing with those ideas and that sense of play and fun is really present in the film in a way that like the critique is just not present they're not trying to have critique so it's not like it fails to be a satire it's just not trying to be Mm -hmm. a satire but they are sort of rolling around in these tropes and wesley is you know like the ultimate swashbuckling hero and buttercup is the ultimate swooning heroine and vizzini is the ultimate like evil humpback mastermind who's more evil than he is smart and you know they just sort of all dial it all the way up to 11 to play with that since the invention of the kiss there have been five kisses that were rated the most passionate the most pure this one left them all behind in looking at one of the reasons i think we feel like it's satire even if it's not is that it does subvert our expectations at almost every turn you can watch almost mm-hmm. any of the good scenes in this movie and notice the beats in which they're just doing the thing that they're not expecting. Yeah. That you, that, so, you know, um, you know, one is, probably the major one, frankly, is we get to the denouement of the movie with the greatest warrior, strongest, smartest guy in the world, and he's incapacitated. He's a, non, he's a non-factor. He's a, a wet lettuce being mm-hmm. dragged around. <laughs> in, in the final um, uh, showdown with Humperdinck, he resorts to his maybe greatest skill of language, but he's laying in bed. You know, yeah. to the pain, having a verbal joust. Oh, that's then, a good scene, too, to the pain. Yeah, it's really good. But even that scene, the way it's shot. So Buttercup comes in. She's getting ready to, to kill herself. She doesn't because, oh, Wesley's on the bed. That's a surprise. Then they're talking, oh, Humperdinck's in the doorway. That's a surprise. Then, mm-hmm. oh, Wesley can stand up. That's a surprise. Oh, wait, he's still weak. That's a surprise. Like, just every single <laughs> beat, every single scene 
almost every beat is exactly the opposite the way the quote-unquote playing it straight way to go. And the sum of that is a feeling of, well, it must be criticizing that thing if it's doing everything. Mm, but really mm-hmm. what it's playing with is our expectations. Yeah. And the, the surprise of doing it the other way is what's so fun. I'm not left-handed either. Like one mm-hmm. of my favorite quotes, but, right? Yeah. That is just, you're expecting, oh, well, you know Indigo, so there's a little dramatic irony because Wesley doesn't know it. He flips, but what you don't know is another switch. It's just incredible but the it, way that every single thing is not what you expect. Yeah, and that starts even with, you know, Inigo standing at the top of the cliffs, like sort of yes. tapping his foot and waiting yes. for, right. for the Dread Pirate Roberts to finish climbing the cliff. And then he's like waiting for a beat. And he's like, could you hurry it up, please? And they have like wonderful banter from the get go mm-hmm. there. But then he makes it to the top and they like chill for a second. And <laughs> right. Inigo tells him his life story. And then they get on to the duel. And that also is just sort of that immediate, you're right, turning of expectations because the, like the thing that happens in an action movie is the guy comes over the edge and then yes. immediately the fighting yep. begins and there's no talking right, right. yeah you know, who are you i'm no one of consequence right I it's one of those know. yeah it's one of those jason bourne fight scenes where it's just like punching and grunting mm. and th- somebody gets really bloody questions you were left with rebecca what if you you know i have a couple or anything about the movie or plots or motivations or anything within the the movie like wait a minute what what about this or how did this end up oh i didn't think i don't think there was anything that i felt like just Mm. was left open i've Um, got a i've got a couple see what you think of these okay in the movie if you've only watched the movie this one's a little more apparent so like at the very beginning buttercup's out for a ride on her horse how do they know where she... I guess she has a regular route in the middle oh. of nowhere that they, they're just standing there waiting for her? Okay, that's part of it. And then second, they get her. They take some time to fumble around. They get her going. They're out on the water, out on the water for a while. And how does Wesley know where they are behind them mm. in the boat? Where was he? Uh, how did he figure out? In the book, it says that he was there when she's presented as the future bride, like the man in black is up right. there. Um, I guess if you're reading the book, you don't know, you really don't know the man in black is Wesley because you don't even have the visible you know, similarities. But in the movie, you're like, wait a minute, they've been sailing for a while. They're out in the middle of nowhere. How the hell does he know they're in the middle of this thing on the way to Gilder? It doesn't make any sense. He knows all the things. It doesn't well, have that's to the, make sense. No, it doesn't have to make sense, <laughs> Rebecca, but these are why they're quibbles. <laughs> These are why they're quibbles. I do not think the Princess Bride wishes to be quibbled with. No, but <laughs> indulge me just for a second. So, okay, the, the scene you were just talking about, where it's a surprise that the man in black, yeah. we don't know anything about him now, mm-hmm. clearly he has respect for Inigo, he knocks him out. If Inigo wins, is he killing the man in black right there? He's supposed to. Well, that's not the, that's not the question I'm asking Rebecca <laughs> has he earned? Has he developed enough respect for the man in black, that if he should win right there, uh-huh. that he just knocks his ass out. Oh, I don't know. I'm Related, leaving it unanswered. Really, that how many people have Vecini <laughs> and Indigo and Fezzik killed to this point? As <laughs> that is a great question. <laughs> it's like in Star Wars, if we didn't see Alderaan blow up, we just sort of heard about Darth Vader. It's like, yeah. well, wait a minute. They've well, been criminals there's... for how long? In the movie, in the book, it's, it suggests their association is pretty extensive right yeah they're not doing great stuff there's also not a lot of money in revenge though so that's why you have to keep doing it that's true (laughs) oh i missed one of my favorite quotes that i just Mm. saw pop up in my notes um also from miracle max but when he's talking about the difference between mostly dead and all dead and how all dead there's only one thing you can do (laughs) go through his clothes and look for loose loose change change. it's pretty good good stuff uh my last one 
is did Humperdinck not in the end get exactly what he wanted? Doesn't he turn around and blame the kidnapping on Gilder and go to war mm-hmm. anyway? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Do I have any other quibbles? Yeah, I, I guess that's those are those are those are the ones that struck me this time. I, I would if you are going to watch it again or you haven't ever watched it, um, go look at the the cliffs of insanity scene where you get the wide shots of them, <laughs> and you can see Wallace Shawn's like fake dummy bald head bobbing along. But then in some other scenes when they're up close, Wallace Shawn is like sandwiched down into Fezzik's armpit, mm-hmm. and apparently that was not a comfortable place to be, given what <laughs> Carrie always talks about in the, in As You Wish. Those scenes of him saying you're supposed to be this great thing, he's like right on top of him while he's right next to this wall, and uh, poor little Wallace Shawn about got Wallace Shawned into smithereens. <laughs> Um, they're a little bit, yeah, but the reversals, I think, you know, the things that make the movie, the movie are Carrie always dancing upon the dancing that Mm -hmm. Goldman does. That's really what it comes back down to me is, is watching that over and over again. Um, yeah, it matters that Carrie always, that you can see the intelligence in his eyes in this character and that he plays it so smart like this is not it's not just like a beefcake role no. and i think they were really smart to cast somebody who could convey all of the things that he conveys i mean through it. It, they shoot him pretty that you don't notice but always is a small guy like he's not a giant you know um really tall athletic sort of guy he's good looking and whatever but he's not i don't know a brad pitt kind of a character right whose physical presence itself in addition to just being really good looking is kind of part of what you get when he walks mm-hmm. on stage um so that's interesting, too. Oh, yeah. How many people has Wesley killed as Dread Pirate Roberts? And how many people are Indigo going to kill as now the new Dread Pirate Roberts? Best not to think of. Maybe that should be it a new kid. That's a category for we should. Best not to think about. Yeah, just you know. questions you shouldn't ask. Yeah. How bad are these guys as bad guys? Yeah, that's yeah. that's pretty tough there at the end. I think in terms of genre, like this is, it's a romantic comedy that's yeah. in a fantasy setting. I think it makes much more under yeah. easier to understand what you're looking at for me at yeah, least. Like, I oh, yeah, it's a romantic comedy. Um, not surprisingly, uh, Rob Reiner goes on to direct the greatest romantic comedy of all time, mm-hmm. When Harry Met Sally, two years mm-hmm. later, which is interesting and in, involving some of the same people, frankly, uh, which is really good yeah. to say too. Last thoughts, Rebecca. Uh, a real winner, the Princess it is. Bride. You know, I think the pitch that the grandpa gives for the book at the very beginning and that we get everywhere like in both the book and the book inside the book and in the movie is just the perfect pitch for this story and it's exactly what you get fencing fighting torture poison true love hate revenge giants hunters bad men good men beautifulest ladies snakes spiders beasts of all natures and descriptions pain death brave men coward men strongest men escape lies truths passion miracles like it's everything grandpa maybe you could come over and read it again to me tomorrow as you wish <laughs>